Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 262. So it's 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 12, 15, page 262 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 12, 15. This is the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slipped at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, 
Thus, you shall, thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the, wife, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house." Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. So, word of the Lord, you may have a seat. Morning, Bethel family. Good to see you all this morning. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 this morning. So um, obviously the story behind Psalm 51 is what Tyler read during the scripture reading there. Um, so really important backdrop. We've actually already sung Psalm 51 in a sense. Um, two of the songs in particular, God Be Merciful to Me, um, is... You'll recognize a lot of the language um, comes from Psalm 51, and O Come to the Altar certainly has a lot of resonance with it as well. So it's on page uh, 474. If you don't have a Bible or if uh, using the one in the pew, you can find Psalm 51 on page 474. So we'll read it here um, in just a minute, but um, just to give you an idea, we just finished a series, Cruciform Ministry, walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be starting a brief series next Sunday called Love Your Literal Neighbor. Um, sometimes we can 
be all about loving, you know, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we forget about the people that live right around us. So I think there's going to be some good application on the heels of our missions conference and as we head into the summer where there's increased opportunity to get to know um, the people God has placed around us um, in our neighborhoods, we're going to be considering that in the next few weeks, gospel hospitality as a way of life. Okay, And then, Lord willing, after that, it's going to be Genesis. Um, so maybe you'd want to begin reading Genesis personally. But this morning, um, it's been on my mind, to, on my heart to uh, preach Psalm 51 for quite a while, just waiting for the opportunity. So here we go. Um, I think it's God's timing. So before we read Psalm 51, I should have just think, you know, your own life, ask yourself some questions. How many times have you totally blown it? How often do you fail? And I mean sinful fails, not just mistakes or stupid things, which we do plenty of those things too, and we can feel really bad about that. It's usually our dinged pride. But I'm talking about sinful failure and mistakes. So let me just help you a little bit here, you know, just serve you, jog your memory a little bit here. Um, In love, grumbling, lust, pride, selfishness, self-pity, Envy, unrighteous unrighteous anger, fear of man, people-pleasing, cowardice, lying, laziness, a critical spirit. So we could go on and on. I'll stop there. Here's the next question. Where do you go when you've blown it? What are your patterns? Just stop and think about the past month, the past six months. Do you know yourself? Do you know your tendencies, your patterns? Where do you go when you've blown it? Do you just get busy and try to ignore it because, you know, you've got this low-level grade guilt that you tend to always live with and you just kind of want to stuff it down under the water like a beach ball? Do you tend to justify or deflect or blame shift or rationalize or minimize or downplay when you've blown it? Or do you beat yourself up? Do you question your salvation? Psalm 51 is the Old Testament passage on repentance. It's a really clear path for us. There's so much grace here. We need a clear path, don't we? We need words. We need to know what to do. We need to know where to go when we've blown it. And we all have and we all will again. So if Christians are anything, they are repenters and believers. That's what we are. It ought to be like breathing, as natural to us, as supernatural natural to us, as breathing. Exhale our sin, repentance. Inhale grace by faith, trusting God's promises and his grace to us. In Christ. Gospel breathing every day. So we need to learn this like we like the back of our hand. We need to learn it so we can find it in the dark. You know this path so well you can find it in the dark. It's why passages like 1 John 1 9 are so important and so precious to so many of us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that verse 
precious to you? I hope it is. Psalm 51 ought to be precious to us as well, and I know it is for many of us. So we all need this, so let's engage here and just welcome, humbly receive the grace of this passage with humility and and soft hearts. So if you're there, let's read through Psalm 51, and then we'll dive in. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. All right, so there's an outline that'll hopefully help just kind of frame things as we walk through. You'll see see the points on the slides. There's also an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. So first, we need to think about the scandal here. And Tyler read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and so we know all about the scandal, right? David's adultery and murder At least we typically talk about it as David's adultery and murder, but it's actually worse than adultery. It wasn't just an affair. That's typically consensual, right? So David sent and inquired about her. Then David sent and took her. So he used her for his own selfish ends. He used his power for his own selfish ends pleasure. He did so through his servants. Just think of the terrible position that he put those people in. The people that were charged to do his bidding, and he was using that power for these purposes. And then think about how he scrambled to cover his tracks, to cover his sin. He's lying. He's trying to bribe. 
He gets Uriah drunk. I mean, he's just multiplying sin in so many different ways. It's so ugly. Uriah is more righteous and honorable than he is, right? We see it by the way he's so loyal to the king and to the nation. I mean, there's this sad, sad irony that's just dripping off the page as we read. And then how sick is it, how cold, that David would put Uriah's death warrant in his hands to be the messenger to take those commands to Joab. So the dignity and honor of a woman, his citizen, trampled by his lust. The dignity and honor and the life of a man, his servant, who was defending him, giving his life to defend him and the nation, trampled to death by his self-preservation. So just think about the impact, not just to Bathsheba, Uriah, their families, but also the morale and the integrity and the dynamics in the kingdom and the administration, like the ripple effects. Just trying to help us get into the reality of this scandal, how far-reaching it was, how incredible it was. Imagine being Bathsheba. Imagine her life from here on out. From honorable marriage to such an honorable man as Uriah to this shameful marriage by means of exploitation and murder. Do you ever wonder what she felt like when she looked at David? When he sought to comfort her, like the text says, over the death of their child later on in chapter 12? How about when she saw other Israelite women whose husbands came home after the battle and they were joyfully reunited? And this is the Lord's anointed? This is the man after God's own heart? 1 Samuel 13. And as soon as we say a man after God's own heart, let's just be clear. God was not happy with David. He was not indifferent. He was very displeased, it says at the end of chapter 11. And then Nathan the prophet communicated God's judgment. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? In his sight, you have utterly scorned the Lord. So David's sin was scandalous. But guess what? So is ours. All sin is actually scandalous in a sense. Maybe not all equally so in terms of its impact, but before God, it is. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of covetousness and lust. We're all guilty of murder. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Anger and hate in our hearts is the equivalent of murder. We've all tried to cover our tracks. We've all been blinded by our sin and blinded to our sin like David was. And some of us have majorly blown it. And some maybe have never brought that into the light because you think that if that came out into the light, your life would be over. So it kind of secretly plagues you. Or maybe you have repented of some major grievous sin in the past, but it still plagues you daily because you can't quite forgive yourself. Well, no matter where you're at this morning, this passage has a lot to say to all of us. And so there is the scandal that happened 
in the kingdom, David, Bathsheba, Uriah, and all of that. But that's not the only scandal in this passage, okay? So if something is scandalous, this little definition um, is helpful. Something is scandalous, it causes general public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. So David's sin is obviously scandalous, but guess what? So is his repentance. Have you ever been scandalized by his repentance? Have you ever felt the audacity of these requests in this psalm? Look down to verse 7. So with all of that in mind as far as what he did and his blindness to it for months, and then finally Nathan confronts him and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then he writes Psalm 51 at some point. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. <gasps> That's a lot of confidence. Like, you're just, you're just telling God that's what's going to happen? He, he's using, that, that's, that's pretty bold. Purge me with hyssop, please, and I so long to be clean. Like, how can he be so bold and confident here? Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. What if you were Bathsheba? Joy? You don't deserve any joy, you snake. What if you were Bathsheba's dad? Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. These are audacious, like scandalous requests. Hide your face from, your, from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I mean, some of that, okay, there, there's contrition and so we can, we can get some of it. Some of it doesn't sound a little self-serving, a little audacious, this joy stuff, this gladness stuff, like, it's almost offensive, isn't it? Anybody? Anybody feeling that? David's sin was scandalous. His requests when he repented were also scandalous. But you know what's even more scandalous than David's requests? It's the grace of the God to whom he prayed. The grace of God is scandalous, folks. How in the world can God justify this guy? How can this guy be righteous in God's sight? How can he be accepted? We need to feel the tension here, okay? So Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So did, is, is what David did wicked? Yes. Like you can, you, you with me? Is that wicked? Okay. So was he justified though and right in God's sight ultimately? Relationship with God reconciled? Yes or no? Yes. So what gives? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 
So we oftentimes wrestle with how can a loving God send people to hell? What about wrestling with the question, how can a just God let off guilty criminals? So uh, NPR's Terry Gross interviewed a guy named Sherman Alexie maybe a year or two ago who wrote a memoir about growing up on the Spokane Indian Reservation in the state of Washington. He grew up surrounded by poverty, alcoholism, and violence. And in the interview, he had, she had him uh, read an excerpt from his memoir. So he said, So the title of this chapter is All My Relations. I am related by blood and marriage to men who hit women and to men and women who hit children and to men and women in jail and in prison and on parole for stealing and robbing and raping and shooting and stabbing and punching and kicking and forging and abetting and neglecting and manslaughtering and murdering and dealing and buying and abandoning and vandalizing and breaking and entering and jacking and driving without insurance and driving under the influence and driving without a license and vehicular homiciding and shoplifting and deserting and violating and failing to pay on time and failing to pay at all and failing to yield and failing to stop, and failing, and failing, and failing, and failing. And then Terry Gross said, are passages like that going to make you very unpopular with some Native Americans, including maybe some members of your family and some friends? And Alexi responded, well, I imagine so. It's not on purpose to offend them, but when you tell the truth, it's naturally going to offend people afraid of the truth afraid of what the truth might force them to do. So listen, folks. <laughs> there are only two options for how this world is run and how justice is upheld. One, you can choose your options here, okay? One, we all get what we deserve. Anybody want that option? Are you righteous? Can you stand before the judge of all the earth on the basis of your own merits, your own performance, your own righteousness? Are you wanting to stand at the end before the judge and say, okay, please give me what I deserve? Anybody willing to do that? Option two. <laughs> Our only plea is to mercy. Blood-bought mercy. It's the only way we can be reconciled to God. It's the only way that we'll ever stand before the judge. Only on the basis of mercy. Only on the basis of the merit of our Savior, Jesus. Our substitute who died in our place for our sin. All of our failure. All of our wretched rebellion. And when he is our savior, he is our advocate, our righteousness, our atoning sacrifice, our everything. And listen, we're all then right in the same boat with wretched King David. We either all get what we deserve or mercy is available. And if mercy is available, then it's available to all, not just to moderate sinners as if there was such a class. All sin is against the infinite honor of the holy God. So it's not just mercy to decent sinners, but to the most wretched sinners. Which, here's, here's how that fleshes out practically. Guess what? That means you're probably going to struggle with a Jonah heart at times. 
because you're going to think you're a better sinner, not as bad a sinner as some other people. And God's going to accept into his family some people that you would rather he judge. Or how about the older brother heart in the parable of the lost sons? All my life I've been to. If mercy is available, it's available to all. Paul Tripp asks a series of very probing questions in his book, Whiter Than Snow. Why do we spontaneously rise to our own defense? Why are you and I devastated when our weakness, sin, and failure are pointed out? Why do we find confrontation and rebuke painful even when they are done in love? Why do we want to believe that we are in the good class of sinners? Why do we want to believe that we are deprived but not depraved? Or that we are depraved but not totally? Why do we find comfort in pointing to people who appear to be worse sinners than we are? Why do we make up self-atoning revisions of our own history? Why do we erect self-justifying arguments for what we've said or done? Why do we turn the tables when someone points out a wrong, making sure that they know that we know that we're not the only sinner in the room? Why do we line up all the good things we've done as a counterbalance for the wrong that is being highlighted? Why is this all so hard to accept? Do you remember Luke 18, that parable, the... Pharisee and the publican. I'm so glad I'm not like. And then the publican is just off to the side, beating his breast. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Who went home justified? Go ahead, just make sure you're awake, you know. Which one? What's that? Publican. I thought somebody said both of them. So, sorry, just checking. All right. But listen, the publican, had you met that guy weeks or months previous, you would have hated him. He was a traitor, an extortionist, a bully, an exploiter. We're no better, okay? Paul Tripp again, he says, when I come to the Lord after I've blown it, I have only one argument to make. It's not the argument of the difficulty of the environment that that I'm in. So many times we want to just shift the blame to our circumstances. It's not the argument of the difficult people that I'm near. Well, if he hadn't or she hadn't. It's not the argument of good intentions that were thwarted in some way. No, I have only one argument. I come to the Lord with only one appeal, his mercy I have no other defense. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. And that's right where David starts out. Have mercy on me, O God. That's what you say when you have no claim on what you're requesting. Have mercy on me, O God, according to not anything in me, but your covenantal steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So if this is who we all are, then isn't the audacity of David's requests, isn't that a crazy, wonderful thing? Might initially offend us, but actually, this is really good news. So we need to follow him on this bold path of faith in the incredible mercy of God. So we aren't worthy. We feel guilty even asking 
So, so here's the thing. Some, some of us can be self-righteous and not realize how deep our sin. Others of us are more often self-loathing and are very hesitant to ever make these bold requests because we feel like we're not worthy. So somehow I need to try to hit both categories. And we can actually vacillate between the two as well, right? So sometimes we, we don't feel like we're worthy. We feel like we just kind of cower in the corner and hope that he'll accept us. We feel like, you know, we're on the JV team, at least I hope. Like maybe the prodigal son, when he comes to his senses, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Can I just have a job as one of your servants? No, what does the father do? Wraps his arms around his son, puts his robe on him and a ring and honors him fully restored, fully reconciled. So our sin is scandalous, but the scandal of God's mercy and grace is more scandalous still. Amen? So we can make audacious requests for forgiveness and cleansing. Even when we've blown it, we can make bold requests for revival and restoration and joy. We stupid rebels can make Bold request for the restoration of joy and gladness. Not because we deserve it, but because God is so scandalously merciful and gracious and good. So we can and we must. So this psalm is here to teach us how to walk the path of true repentance, godly grief that leads to true repentance, not the path of worldly grief that leads to death. And there is such a path. So David bases his appeals, we need to learn from him, on God's merciful, gracious, loving character. And he is really coming to terms with his sin here. He is experiencing godly grief. So point number three, godly grief. Look at verse three. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He knew the sinfulness of his sin. It was his felt experience, not just mental assent. He had certainly lived a while in self-deception, but he had come to his senses, thankfully by God's grace in giving Nathan and Nathan's boldness to risk his life, in a sense, to confront David. He's calling his sin what it is. He doesn't dance. He's not justifying or minimizing or blame-shifting or downplaying. And he's recognizing the ultimacy of his sin. It's a characteristic of godly, godly grief, vertical. Our sin is vertical. All sin is vertical. So look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or the Net Bible translation says, against you, you above all, I have sinned. I think that certainly gets at the sense of it. So all sin is ultimately and most egregiously against God. I mean, if there's no God, then our sin is actually just a social construction, and it's ultimately meaningless because we just live in this dog-eat-dog world, you know, survival of the fittest, and the weak get used and abused by the strong. So, of course, David sinned egregiously against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against their families, against the nation. We can't downplay that at all. But the source of all of his sin, the most heinous dynamic in all of his sin, is how he despised his God and Savior and King through it all. 
And that is key to true repentance, is coming to terms with the sinfulness of our sin, the evil of it that's both vertical and horizontal. So we've got to not only seek forgiveness for the horizontal impact of our sin, we've got to come to terms with the verticality of our sin. You can write down Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13 and see, look at that later, see how evil is described there, and it's all in vertical terms. So David shows us the path of godly grief that leads to repentance. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That, the latter half of that verse is just remarkable. I mean, especially in, in our day and age, this is so countercultural. When it's so natural to dance around, I mean, obviously that's in us, but it's all around us in our culture. It's like David is entering the courtroom as a witness against himself. It's like he's his own prosecuting attorney against himself. He's testifying against himself. He's indicting himself. He doesn't try to justify himself. He accuses and incriminates and convicts himself. Who does this? You know the kind of people that can do this? The people who know that they're dealing with a merciful God whose steadfast love is greater than our sin. This is what the gospel can do. Only the gospel can do this. So there's no equivocating, no faux-pologies. You know, that's a word now, I think. Faux-pology. Or sorry, not sorry. It's all over the place. You know, politicians in the marketplace, you know, when... Mistakes were made, non-apologies. There were lapses in judgment. I'm sorry that statements taken out of context had such repercussions. Or, I'm sorry if you were offended. Or, I'm sorry you feel that way. No. In Psalm 51, it is just honest. Honest with God, honest with himself, honest with others. That is so key in real godly grief that leads to repentance. Honesty. So Brad Hambrick is is the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in North Carolina. And he had this great post called Seven Marks of a Good Apology versus Eight Marks of a Bad Apology, which could be a little overwhelming because it's kind of hard to remember 15 things. But I'm not going to talk about any of the eight marks of a bad apology. The point is just listen here. If you want to actually get these, I'll put them on the blog tomorrow and you can you know, read it more. I'm just going to give a little summary of what he wrote. But these are helpful because this passage is for us and we need to learn how to repent. So seven marks of a good apology. He says, repentance is when we quit trying to make our dysfunction work and embrace the life-giving alternative to our sin that God offers. It's a pretty good little intro there. So he says seven marks. First, address everyone involved. When you fail to seek forgiveness, you leave that person believing you think your actions were acceptable to God. So one, for instance, parents, husband, wife, if you sin against your spouse and your kids are listening, you need to apologize to your spouse, but you should also apologize to your kids because there's an impact there to them. Second, avoid if, but, and maybe. 
Our first tendency in repentance is to soften what we admit. Words like if, but, and maybe have no place in repentance. If calls into question whether what you did was really wrong. If what I did, I mean, come on, do I need to even explain this? That We do this all the time. Anybody tracking with me? You've had this happen to you as far as how people have apologized to you. Or, you know, we, we tend to soften it. We do it as well. So, if calls into question whether what you did was really wrong, but, but transforms repentance into accusation. I'm sorry, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the, like, yes, 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 but. Maybe indicates you are not convinced your actions were wrong and invites a conversation or debate that is likely to go badly and regardless is not repentance. Third, admit specifically. Generic confession is often a sign of insincerity. We all know what happened is no excuse for brevity. Hearing that you can be specific without falling into blame shifting or self-pity is an important indicator that you are a safe person and that restoration is wise. Fourth, apologize, acknowledge the hurt. Sin has consequences, both unintentional and intentional. Repentance expresses empathy and often takes responsibility for the dominoes that fall as a result of our sin. This is not groveling or penance, both of which are emotionally manipulative. It's an exercise in other-mindedness. Fifth, accept the consequence. I love this. Repentance is not a plea bargain or negotiation. Repentance is not a time when we establish the acceptable terms for our sin. We are not presenting a contract or deal, but that we are seeking to be restored to a person. So this is all horizontal evidence that the vertical repentance, godly grief that leads to repentance, has taken place, that Psalm 51 has worked its way into your soul, and it's just spilling out horizontally. So let me just add something here under the accept the consequence. Do you remember 2 Samuel 12 in verse 10? The sword shall never depart from your house. The baby's going to die. The fact that David meekly accepted the consequences is more evidence of godly grief leading to repentance. So how many times do people, including we ourselves, apologize and then resent the consequences? As if forgiveness means being entitled to the removal of all consequence. Listen, godly grief, godly grief wants God. So if the restoration of that relationship is there, then that restored sinner is satisfied. And the consequences are willingly taken because not even the consequences can take away what you really want, which is restore relationship with God. So as long as I have God, I'm willing to face whatever consequences God gives. Six, alter your behavior, which is kind of obvious. The repentant conversation is not the culmination of the journey. Repentance is rooted in the gospel paradigm of dying to self to find life. And then finally, ask for forgiveness and allow time is also really important. I'm sorry is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Will you forgive me is the appropriate statement we've sinned against another person. Forgiveness is commanded by God, but Scripture never calls on the confessing party to be the one who reminds others of this command or to insist 
that it be obeyed. As a general rule to promote humility and patience, listen, allow at least as much time for forgiveness as it took you to come to repentance. It is hypocritical to expect someone else to process suffering, your sin against them, faster than you changed your sin. Okay, so sin is scandalous. Grace is more scandalous still. When we sin, we need, to, we need godly grief that leads to genuine repentance. And then finally, listen, we need to know, to believe this, that God can still use you. I think sometimes we think if we've blown it, we've completely neutralized our ability to do anything, to be useful to God. Some of you might be paralyzed. And, you, and maybe you think you'll feel better if you just keep beating yourself up. No, God can still use you. Look, look at verse 13. Again, these are kind of audacious, a little shocking, considering who's saying these things and what he's done. But this is hopeful. Look at verse 13. Then, after you answer these prayers for restoration, for forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and all of that, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Amen. Again, that can be audacious like, um, you just need to sit down and shut up. I don't want to hear anything from you, you wretched sinner. Okay, there's a place for that. Like, we know that we don't always get restored immediately to, you know, like if, if there's some pastor that commits adultery, he shouldn't be preaching the next Sunday because, well, I just repented so we've forgiven and we can move on. It's the difference between forgiveness and restoration, right? You shouldn't show up in the pulpit at some other church three months later down the road. But that doesn't mean that someone who sins egregiously is forever sidelined and can never open their mouth again to minister to someone else, to help someone else. I love what Alec Motier writes. He says, it is the returned sinner who can lead sinners back. So guess what? David is going to be exhibit A that God saves sinners, that God restores sinners. So his repentance, his gracious restoration, instead of undermining the truth of the gospel, illustrates it for other rebellious sinners like you and me that totally blow it sometimes. So sinners who are willing to come to God with a humble, contrite heart of repentant faith appealing to nothing but blood-bought compassion and mercy and steadfast love, you can be useful in God's hands again. And David is a perfect illustration of this. In fact, the very fact that we're reading this psalm, that you've read it before and have been helped, shows you that God's answered his prayers. How many times has this psalm led sinners back, helped sinners who need hope? and mercy and restoration. How many times? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times, I'm sure. Millions of times throughout history. Those who've been forgiven much boast much in the cross and love much. It's like Jesus' words to Peter in Luke 22. When you have turned again, you know, after you deny me three times, and then I restore you. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Guilt and shame can silence us, and in a sense, there can be appropriate time for that. But the Lord's grace can truly deal with our sin and truly set us free, enabling us to speak. Several have said this over the ages. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. (laughs) So listen, be careful writing someone off as a hypocrite because they blew it. Listen to James 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So don't you need, don't you need mercy? Of course you do. So we treat others with the same mercy that we ourselves have so desperately needed. Those who know their need of mercy are willing to extend mercy. So a couple of illustrations, and then we'll be done here in just a few minutes. So my nunny, my Italian grandma, who lived to be 100, died um, back when Sam was like two. Was like the godliest woman I ever knew. Just... So sweet. I could tell you all kinds of wonderful stories about her. And when I was in grade school, I stole $20 out of her purse. And that sin held me captive for a long time. And I feared confessing that to her and making it right. And when I finally did... God's grace at work in me. This wasn't until college, folks. So Nunny was in her, I don't know, 80s or 90s at that point, and she couldn't hear so well. And so you'd really have to speak up for her to hear you, but guess what? That holy moment, I mean, I was so nervous. I had $20 in my hand, and I said, I can remember exactly where I was. I said, Nunny, I need to talk to you about something. And she saw it in my eyes. And she pulled me back into her bedroom, and she sat on the bed, and there was this little chair right beside her bed. She heard every word I said, and I wasn't yelling, folks. You know what her first, the first words out of her mouth were? You know, honey, when I was a little girl in Italy, I stole a loaf of bread. (laughs) And she told me that story, and she forgave me, of course. And of course, she wouldn't take the money. Okay, maybe that's easy, 20 bucks with your grandson. Well, fast forward a little while, and my dad committed adultery. He was pastor, and he had to come and confess that to his mother-in-law and let everybody know what had happened. And I, this was shortly after Beth and I got married, And I went home when we found out about all this. And so I actually went to a couple of these meetings where he was confessing to people. And I went to West Virginia where my nanny lived. And I remember sitting down in the living room and he confessed that to her. Guess what the first thing out of her mouth was? 
Well, you know, King David. In other words, mercy was so much a part of the fabric of her soul that when her heart, even when her heart was ripped open, mercy came spilling out. So careful writing someone off who sinned egregiously. If they've genuinely repented, God can still, well, first of all, God can restore them. But God can also even still use them. And here's the second thing I would say, careful writing yourself off. Because I know some of you, the tendency is not so much to self-righteousness as it is to self-loathing. If you've sinned egregiously, if you've fallen again in that same sin, okay, surprise, repent. Follow David on this well-worn path of godly grief leading to repentance. Listen, folks, this hit me this week. You know where Peter says, hey, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? You know, seven times. I'll be really spiritual because usually people say three. I'll say seven. I'm so spiritual. And Jesus says, you need to quit keeping count. Seventy times seven. That is the heart of God right there. Not just an instruction to Peter. It's the heart of God reflected and revealed in his instruction to Peter because God is a forgiving God over and over and over and over and over and over again. So there's mercy for you, for me. God can still use us. Repentance and faith is like gospel breathing. We all need to learn this path by heart so well that we can find it in the dark. We need to see our tendency, of course, to worldly grief, just being sorry for the consequences or whatever. We need to repent even of that. We need to pursue godly grief that leads to repentance. We need to see the audacity, the shameless boldness of the request for repentance here and embrace them as our own. We need to see and believe the glorious scandal of God's amazing grace. We need to see it again and again and again and again and again. And we need to see that we can still be used even when we've blown it in a major way. So maybe some of you actually need to see one of those things in particular. Maybe somebody here needs a Nathan moment. Maybe this is that Nathan moment. Confrontation, eyes open, no more hiding, no more covering your tracks. It's like so afraid of the consequences. Okay, you're not here by accident. We're not in this passage by accident. Come talk to me. Let's talk about walking in the light. There's grace for this. There is a merciful God that can restore an adulterous, murderous king and call a man after his own heart. So let's take a moment just prayerfully and ask the Lord what work he wants to do in our hearts as the team comes back up to sing. We're going to sing of the amazing grace that we've read of and studied here in Psalm 51 to close. So I'll pray for us and then we'll sing together.
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we know that you are fully and finally revealed in your Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, Father, would you please help us to see our sin and own it. Help us to see your incredibly wonderful mercy, scandalous mercy, and embrace it. Lord, do whatever work you intend to do by your spirit. Don't let us resist you. Don't let us run from you this morning. And I pray that we would all leave here thrilled with how amazing your grace is and singing of it. In Jesus' name, amen.